Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Authorities have arrested the suspect in the long unsolved Long Island serial killings. He's charged with murdering at least three women over 10 years ago. Another attempt. The Biden administration announces a plan to cancel nearly $40 billion in student debt for hundreds of thousands of borrowers. How that works and how likely it is to come true. The House passes a defense budget for the next fiscal year. It includes a few am amendments that Republicans are celebrating and Democrats are pushing back against. Federal surveillance that can violate Americans' privacy. For the second time in three months, a House committee examines the pros and cons of stopping it. Last night at midnight, actors joined writers to strike over what they're calling unfair wages and potential job losses. The strike is disrupting TV production. And in Sudan, a mass grave is discovered showing the deadly extent of the current fighting. The UN says the victims include women and children. A series of murders that went unsolved for over a decade, and now a suspect is in custody. Authorities in Suffolk County, New York, arrested Rex Huerman for some of the Gilgo Beach murders. We knew uh, the person responsible for these murders would be looking at us. So we were very careful uh, how we, we, we handled the investigation. We maintained the integrity of the investigation. Uh, most, important, uh, most importantly of all, we maintained the secrecy uh, of that investigation. And I think that's, uh, that's paid dividends uh, as we've seen today. Eleven sets of human remains, mostly of women, were discovered along an isolated stretch of Gilgo Beach on Long Island in 2010 and 2011. Five of the victims were prostitutes and had been missing since 2007. Authorities were executing a search warrant when they arrested Rex Huerman, a 59-year-old architect from Long Island, last night. A grand jury earlier today indicted him for six counts of murder in connection with three of the murders. He's also the prime suspect in the murder of a fourth woman. This is the first arrest in the long dormant case, which terrorized the local community and drew national attention. The suspect appeared in a courtroom today and maintained that he is innocent. Giving it another try, the Biden administration has a new plan to cancel nearly $40 billion of student loans. That comes after the high court struck down its original idea. NTD's Iris Tao has more. The Biden administration now plans to cancel $39 billion in student debt for over 800,000 borrowers. The Friday announcement comes after the Supreme Court just weeks ago struck down President Biden's $400 billion student loan cancellation plan. And Biden reacted to the decision then by vowing, This decision has closed one path. Now we're going to pursue another. And now the administration says there were historical inaccuracies in how borrowers' monthly payments toward their student loan are counted. And by fixing the system, it says some 800,000 borrowers will see their debt wiped away in the coming weeks. But Republicans fire back. GOP Senator Eric Schmidt called it another student loan debt bailout scheme. And Republican Congresswoman Virginia Fox said it was a blatantly political attempt to circumvent the Supreme Court. It's much more likely to stand up. But Ryan York, a senior research faculty at the American Institute for Economic Research, told me that this plan was a lot narrower. This plan, rather than being wholesale forgiveness for a wide 
uh, swath of borrowers. It instead narrowly uses the regulations uh, that already exist about income-driven repayment plans. And I think the courts will be less likely to view it as an overreach by the Department of Education. Reporting by Iris Tao, NTD News. The House today passed the annual National Defense Authorization Act. Republicans hail this as a win since they included amendments that push back against the Biden administration's social policies in the Pentagon. The House on Friday approved the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2024 with a vote of 219 to 210. The budget bill authorizes $886 billion for national defense programs, as well as a 5.2% pay raise for service members, the largest in decades. Just focus on the military. Stop using taxpayer money to do their own wokeism. A military cannot defend themselves if you train them in woke. We don't want Disneyland to train our military. We want our men and women in the military to have every defense possible. Lawmakers approved amendments that reversed the Biden administration's social policies in the Pentagon. These include banning the Pentagon from paying for or reimbursing service members for abortions, banning the military's health plan from covering gender transition procedures, and banning diversity, equity, and inclusion training within the military. Members of the House Freedom Caucus were behind many of the amendments. They hail the passage of the bill as a victory. The House Freedom Caucus, America's Freedom Caucus, is never going to stop to making every single bill that gets out of here as the best it can be, the most righteous it can be, and the best for America. The Defense Authorization Act is a critical must-pass bill that usually enjoys widespread bipartisan support. But this time, it passed largely along party lines. The four Republican House members who voted against the bill were Andy Biggs and Eli Crane of Arizona, Ken Buck of Colorado, and Tom Massey of Kentucky. The four Democratic House members who voted for the bill were Jared Golden of Maine, Donald Davis of North Carolina, Gabriel Vasquez of New Mexico, and Marie Glusenkamp Perez of Washington. The House Democratic leadership offered their reaction to the bill. It is woefully irresponsible that extreme MAGA Republicans have hijacked a bipartisan bill that is essential to our national security and taken it over and weaponized it in order to jam their extreme right-wing ideology down the throats of the American people. The Democrat-controlled Senate is expected to begin consideration of its own version of the Defense Authorization Act next week. An initial procedural vote to take up the bill could come next Tuesday. The House version of the bill will need to be reconciled with whatever the Senate passes. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. And House subcommittee today examined possible solutions to the federal government's warrantless surveillance of Americans. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards reports. A House subcommittee on Friday examined possible solutions to the federal government's use of the FISA Act to conduct warrantless searches of the American people. The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, was created in 1978 to curtail government surveillance abuses that resulted in rampant privacy violations. In 2008, Congress enacted Section 702 of FISA, which permits targeting non-U.S. citizens. The act will expire in December unless Congress reauthorizes it for a third time. Despite efforts to rein in these abuses, the federal government continues to use its powers to illegally spy on American citizens. 
Because the abuses have continued, both sides of the aisle uniquely agreed they must do something to reform the law or remove it. We have to build a Section 702 regime that fully respects our privacy, no matter who is in charge. Panel witnesses agreed that agencies had utilized a loophole in the law to unlawfully tap into Americans' communications stored in data banks. Even if the FBI comes across Americans' information it, or other agencies, NSA, CIA, um, that, that doesn't even seem to be a foreign intelligence or an evidence of a crime, uh, they pretty much never get rid of it. One panelist said there needs to be a balance between protecting our national security and our privacy. My preference would be some kind of reform effort with teeth and accountability because there hasn't been any teeth and there hasn't been any accountability in, in the oversight that's been conducted. Another panelist commented on what could happen if Section 702 isn't reauthorized. There was a, a, an existence before 702, and Rome did not burn, uh, that you have a system that can handle it. Uh, the question is whether Congress feels that these abuses are so serious that you want to use a rule. But what could happen without the rule? If there's no statute that governs the issue, uh, you're basically going to be opening the door to the White House and Justice Department lawyers to come up with creative rationale. Congress has the constitutional authority to determine when, why, and how Americans can be surveilled. The House will continue to consider this issue in the coming months. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Hollywood actors joined writers to strike at midnight last night. They're asking for an increase in pay and a guarantee that their jobs will not be replaced by AI. Hollywood actors went on strike at midnight Thursday after talks with studios broke down. They joined film and television writers who have been on picket lines since May, disrupting the production of shows and movies. Fran Drescher, former star of The Nanny TV doing? Show Moving and the president of SAG-AFTRA, called the studio's responses to actors' it's concerns crazy. insulting and disrespectful. You cannot change the business model as much as it has changed and not expect the contract to change too. We're not going to keep doing incremental changes on a contract that no longer honors what is happening right now with this business model that was foisted upon us? Both SAG-AFTRA, Hollywood's largest union representing 160,000 film and television actors, and the Writers Guild of America are demanding increases in base pay and residuals in the streaming TV era, plus assurances that their work will not be replaced by artificial intelligence. Well, number one, we're fighting for basic respect and protection for our members. That includes things like making sure that our members uh, aren't abused by unfair provisions regarding artificial intelligence. They don't have their image and likeness and voice stolen from them through that method. Number two, making sure that they are not working in 2023 or in 2026 for less money in real dollar terms than they made in 2020. The entire business model has been changed by streaming, digital, AI, this is a moment of history that is a moment of truth. If we don't stand tall right now, we are all going to be in trouble. We are all going to be in jeopardy of being replaced by machines. Hollywood studios now face their first dual work stoppage in over 60 years, forcing them to halt many productions across the United States and abroad.
The twin strikes will add to the economic damage from the writer's walkout, delivering another blow to an industry struggling with changes to its business. The strike, by roughly 11,500 writers, has sent late-night television talk shows into endless reruns, disrupted most production for the fall TV season, and stopped work on big-budget movies. A deadline to reach a new contract expired on July 12th. Officials said actors would join picket lines in New York and Los Angeles from Friday morning. Coming up, what's it like to run a business in China? A panel of business leaders and lawmakers break down the reality of doing business in the shadow of the communist regime. And China's hacker army is becoming more and more sophisticated. Instead of loud smash-and-grab operations, they're now stealthily hiding deep within networks, collecting data on America. More when we return. What's it like doing business in China? Is there a price to pay for prospering under the shadow of the communist state? Three business leaders sat down with U.S. lawmakers during a congressional hearing last night, breaking down the reality of China's economy. NTD's Sam Wang brings us more from Capitol Hill. We're out here on Capitol Hill where several business leaders testify before a panel of lawmakers on Thursday night. And they're urging U.S. business leaders to watch out before they put a dime into China's economy. Watch. I would like to recount three personal stories that illustrate the essence of doing business in China. This is Desmond Shum, one of the most well-connected billionaires in China. In the 1990s, Shum and his ex-wife built a multi-billion dollar property development company from scratch using their connection with high-ranking Chinese officials. But the real estate magnate took off from China in 2015, just when the regime's leadership began to impose greater state control over the nation's businesses. Shum's ex-wife disappeared two years later. It is believed that she was held captive by the CCP officials. But according to Shum, she was never charged for any crime. Speaking to the U.S. House Select Committee on the CCP, here's what he summed up in a nutshell. My lesson. In China, there's no such a feel such a thing as a level playing field. You either prosper when favored by the state or you perish when you are not. Sitting next to Shum is Shazad Kazi. He is the chief operating officer of China Beigebook, an advisory firm offering data analysis on the Chinese economy. Kazi said that the constrained information environment inside China is making investments there increasingly less reliable. So what is the current status quo of China's economy? Is it doing pretty well or is it heading down a slippery slope? I spoke with Mr. Kazi on the ground, and here's what he told me. Watch. At the beginning of the year, you had all these banks on Wall Street uh, claiming that there, this was going to be the year of a bombastic recovery in China. And so the street sold investors this magical China growth story that was, com that was not based on any reality. What that's done is since then, there's been a massive market sell-off, a lot of weakness in China. Given all the risks involved in China, what will it take for business leaders to send their investments elsewhere? Mike Gallagher, chairman of the committee, told me that the purpose of this hearing was to raise awareness for U.S. investors. But he also noted that it is ultimately going to require legislative action. Passing legislation on restricting the flow of U.S. capital to China, outbound capital, guardrails, I think is of paramount importance. It's something I think we need to do in the 118th Congress. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Sam Wong, NTD News. China's hacker armies are becoming more sophisticated. 
Instead of the crude, loud smash-and-grab methods used only years ago, they're now focusing on stealth. China's hackers are becoming more and more sophisticated in their attacks on the U.S. Before, hacks from China would immediately raise loud alarms. Everyone could easily see the hack, as well as the fact China did it. And Americans would then know how to guard against future hacks. The methods were quite crude. But now, China's hacks are stealthy. Hackers hide deep inside computer networks for months or even years, quietly monitoring what's going on and gathering data. One method they use is they avoid hacking the main computers. Instead, they hack peripheral devices, such as printers, routers, or the Internet of Things devices. This could include smart TVs. The malware would be actually loaded into the operating system uh, of, a, of a device. And then the device is activated on the network and then can spread to other devices. Uh, and this is typically how these, these uh, hacks are happening uh, today. Rex Lee is a security advisor at MySmart Privacy. He says that because everything is connected to a network these days, hacking into one item can connect you to every item. The recent attack on Microsoft email accounts, including those of high-profile officials like Gina Raimondo, may have used this method. Experts say it may be the stealthiest attack ever discovered. These attacks worry Americans because they could compromise valuable information. The biggest thing would be critical infrastructure, going after the power grid. All you have to do is take the power grid out and people are pretty much defenseless. Lee has little confidence America can protect itself well. He says that the government's cyber infrastructure is extremely outdated and many organizations don't have the highest encryption standards because those standards may be too expensive. Faye Quarter, NTD News. Next, we'll hear from the editor-in-chief of the Epic Times U.S. edition, Jasper Fackert. In our chat earlier today, he reflected on the history of the paper, which was entered into the congressional record yesterday in a speech by Representative Ralph Norman. Jasper, welcome. Great to have you on. The history of the Epic Times was read on the House floor yesterday and recorded into congressional records. What's the significance of this for the Epic Times and for all those who have contributed to it over the years? Thank you for having me on. Um, yeah, that, that was a special moment for all of us. Um, I think, uh, you know, to have Representative Norman read the history of the Epoch Times on the House floor, um, it was significant. Um, the funny thing is, even a lot of our own subscribers don't know the, the story of the Epoch Times. But as Representative Norman explained, it was founded by Chinese Americans who saw what was happening in communist China and they saw the need for an independent press. And from there, it grew to basically become a major media all across the world to become the fourth biggest newspaper in the United States. Um, so I think it had a profound impact, um, both you know, within the United States as well as all over the world, especially in China, where obviously the CCP um, has, you know, continues its persecution campaigns. It's spread a lot of disinformation about the Epoch Times and, and its Chinese edition. Uh, so to have something like this happen, uh, I, I think it was very profound and it had a big impact. In his speech, Representative Norman went into the challenges that the Epoch Times has faced over the years, some of which you spoke about, but especially those caused by the Chinese Communist Party. Could you tell us about that? Absolutely. So after the Epoch Times was founded, um, initially we had reporters and editors in China to report on the ground what was happening there. Um, sadly enough, all of those people 
at the time were arrested and, and detained and, and some were sentenced to prison sentences as long as 10 years in China for their work in, in doing independent reporting. And they faced torture in jail. Um, it, was a, it was a very difficult period um, for the media. Um, but even if you look at beyond China's borders, um, you know, the CCP has never given us a break, basically, whether it's incessant cyber attacks or even attacks within the United States. In 2006, we had an incident where um, our lead um, IT um, professional at the time, his home was broken into. Um, he was, you know, he was duct taped to a chair, his mouth was closed, he was beaten, and the only thing that was stolen were his laptops. Um, if you look in, in 2019, we had one of our printing presses literally set on fire in Hong Kong. And just two years later, we had an incident where assailants came in with sledgehammers to literally smash up the printing equipment. So again, um, I think the Epoch Times is, is a story of, of resilience um, in the face of, of challenges. And quite honestly, that, that's what it takes to, to do good journalism. Um, there are um, high odds um, to overcome, but you know, given the importance and, and the dedication that we see among our staff, I think you know we've been able to, you know, to grow up to this point basically. It is really a positive story in the end, the Epic Times story. It's a great American story in some ways, one of overcoming all odds, as you say, in the pursuit of justice, truth, and freedom. So what do you think America today can learn from the Epic Times history and its success? Well, I think, like you said, I think the, 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 this story could have only happened in America. Uh, you know, when John founded the Epic Times, he did so in his, in his basement in, in the suburb of Atlanta. He didn't have anything, um, but he had the wish to do it. And America is the country where that's possible. This is where uh, our free speech is protected. Um, this is where uh, a free press um, can flourish. Um, and I think what it takes is the uh, determination uh, to do it and a commitment to the highest standards of journalism. And I think that's brought us where we are at this point. And that's why I think the speech on the House floor was so profound, because it's basically an acknowledgement of all this hard work that has been put in over the past 20 some years. Jasper Fackert, Editor-in-Chief of the Epic Times U.S. Edition. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And over in Sudan, fierce fighting continues in the war-torn country. It has displaced millions of people. And now a mass grave has been discovered showing the extent of the deadly conflict. NTD's Jason Perry has that update. In a troubling development, a mass grave has been uncovered in Sudan. The United Nations Human Rights Office says that at least 87 people, including women and children, were buried in the grave in West Darfur. And the UN says it has credible evidence that suggests the paramilitary group, the Rapid Forces, or RSF, was responsible for the killings. The conflict in Sudan began about three months ago when the RSF engaged Sudan's military in a fight for power. And much of the fighting has taken place in Sudan's capital, Khartoum. Civilians have faced looting, sexual violence, power outages, shortages of food and water, and a lack of medical services. And many civilians have been caught in the crossfire, resulting in a tragic humanitarian crisis. 
To address the situation, Egypt has taken the initiative to mediate between the two military factions. Here's Egyptian President Abdul Fattah al-Sisi on Thursday. Firstly, I'm calling on warring factions to cease escalation and to start without further delay serious negotiations that aim at reaching an immediate and sustainable ceasefire. Secondly, I'm calling on all Sudanese parties to facilitate the passage of humanitarian aid. LCC's plan aims to achieve a three-month ceasefire. I talked to geopolitical strategist Alps Savim Lasoy about the situation in Sudan. With regard to the mass graves, I mean, it's a human travesty. But moreover, it's another sign that the RSF should have been folded into the Sudanese National Army. I mean, this was the big reason as to why General Al-Buran and General De Gallo had a falling out. And we have to remember that there was a point where General De Gallo was Al-Buran's deputy. So what we're seeing really is the fallout from a power struggle that's engulfed not just Sudan, but the region at large. But could the RSF actually be integrated into the Sudanese military? Yes, absolutely, Jason. I think we can definitely see the RSF becoming part of the Sudanese army, mainly because when we look at what's happened before the conflict, we saw a collaboration on multiple fronts. When the uprisings occurred in Darfur, the RSF became infamous for their actions. In fact, many of them were unlawful. So at this point, if the Sudanese National Army can separate those perpetrators of many of these crimes from those who feel as though they're fighting for some sense of legitimacy of their own, what we can create is a more secure, better structured Sudanese armed forces that resembles more of the populace and more of the political spectrum within the country. So far, about two and a half million people have fled their homes in Sudan to go to other regions within the country, and another 700,000 have fled to neighboring countries for safety. Jason Perry, NTD News. Coming up, the heat wave is upon us. In the southwest, temperatures are reaching past 110. We'll hear how to stay safe and hydrated. And a number of state attorneys general are warning America's largest corporations that they can't use race in hiring and firing decisions. We hear from the CEO of a job board company after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. A suspect has been arrested in the Gilgo Beach murders that puzzled investigators for over a decade. He's been identified as a, an architect from Long Island. The Biden administration is giving it another try at canceling student loans. The Department of Education announced a new plan that would wipe out $39 billion of debt for over 800,000 borrowers. The House passes the Defense Authorization Act largely along party lines. Included in the bill are amendments that reverse the Pentagon's policies on abortions and gender transition procedures. A strike in Hollywood is still disrupting TV and movie, movie productions. Actors have now joined writers in demanding higher pay and guarantees that they wouldn't be replaced by AI. An already dangerous weeks-long heat wave will only worsen this weekend. A heat dome is intensifying and reaching peak strength over parts of the western United States. More than 90 million people under heat alerts after the heat dome expanded into places like California. 
The National Weather Service in Phoenix is calling the heat dome one of the strongest high-pressure systems this region has ever seen. Phoenix is in the middle of a likely record-breaking streak of consecutive 110-degree days. The low temperature in Phoenix might not drop below 90 degrees for eight consecutive days, which would set another record. California's Death Valley, which is the hottest place on Earth, could reach 130 degrees this Sunday. California is now experiencing its first extreme heat wave of the year. And with temperatures rising to triple digits, it's important to know how to keep yourself safe and cool. NTD's Christina Corona tells us more. With the heat wave forecast coming up within the next few days, it's important to know how to prepare, know what to avoid, and how to care for others during this extreme period of abnormally unsafe weather. On Wednesday, officials from several state agencies and the National Weather Service held a media briefing about the extreme heat event expected later this week. One of the things I want to emphasize off the top of this presentation is that extreme heat is a killer. More than any disaster we face, we see more fatalities from heat. Ferguson also said cooling centers are open statewide, and a link to these cooling centers can be found on the Cal OES website that will be continuously updated throughout the day. But California isn't the only place experiencing the heat wave. So as this heat builds all across the southwest U.S., we're looking at, you know, potential daily records for high temperatures being broken from California to the west through Arizona all the way into West Texas. So uh, it's a really significant expansion expansion of the heat and uh, daily records could be broken and it looks like the peak of the heat looks to be coming in Friday through uh, next Monday and that's when uh, a lot of records will be in jeopardy. According to ready.gov, if you are under an extreme heat warning, find air conditioning if possible. Avoid strenuous activities, watch for heat illness, wear light clothing, check on family members and neighbors, drink plenty of fluids, watch for heat cramps, heat exhaustion, and heat stroke, and never leave people or pets in a closed car. Beat the heat by keeping hydrated, seeking shelter in cold places, and taking it easy when these drastic temperatures soar. Christina Corona, NTD News, Los Angeles. Latest development in affirmative action. A number of state attorneys general are warning America's largest corporations that they can't use race in hiring and firing decisions. Since the Supreme Court's recent decision, they say it's now illegal. Earlier today, I spoke with the CEO and founder of Job Board and Talent Connector Red Balloon, Andrew Krapischetz, for his analysis. Andrew, thanks for joining us. What's your response to the AG's letter on affirmative action? This is actually really good. This is very exciting because what we're hearing um, out in the workplace at redballoon.work is we see that a lot of companies are using racial discrimination. In fact, something like a third of all hiring managers have been told you may not hire white people. Um, and that is racial discrimination, whether you like it or not. And so we're helping to push back on that. And it's encouraging to see the state attorneys general actually push back as well and say, look, the Supreme Court said this about the universities, and it's now coming to the corporations. This is something we were hoping for, and we're excited to see it in place. Now, many people are still concerned that race-based gaps still exist in the workplace. Is there a way that companies can address that without DEI programs, do you think? Yeah, well, what's interesting is if you actually read the ruling or the, the letter that the attorneys general sent, and I'm going to read just a really small part of it, it says, one of the principal reasons race-based 
is treated as a forbidden classification that is demeaning the dignity and worth of a person who is judged by their ancestry instead of by their own merit and essential qualities, right? And so it is demeaning, no matter what your skin color is, to say, I don't care if you're the best person at the job or not the best person, you're getting this job because of your skin color. And so we're encouraging corporations to get back to the meritocracy that made America great in the first place. You hire the best people for the job. And I know that I've hired a number of people, hundreds of people over the years. And if I've hired someone based on their skin color, um, that is um, that is mean to them because now they're saying, look, I wasn't the best person for the job, but it's a sympathy hire. Nobody wants a sympathy hire. That's demeaning to the person. So I would encourage corporations to look for the best people. And often the best people might have a different skin color than you do, but that shouldn't bother you. As you referred to, you've been working to facilitate merit-based employment practices through your organization, Red Balloon. What are the qualities that make for the most successful match in your experience? Yeah, it is people who want to show up and work hard. Uh, today's corporations are struggling to get people who actually show up. Um, I was talking to one company, and they said the, the applicants coming from a, a big job board like Indeed.com, only 30% actually show up for the interview. 70% ghost the interview. So they are struggling to find people who just have a work ethic, who want to focus on providing value to that company, who actually believe in capitalism. And that's what RedBalloon.Work is focusing on. We have great job seekers who are serious about a career, who want to build the company that they're working for, and aren't going to bring a lot of this woke nonsense into the workplace. So, um, And it's working. A lot of these companies are surviving. We saw CNBC just had a ranking of the state States that are friendliest to business and are succeeding and most prosperous, and they're generally red states. So the scorecard is out. If you go woke, you might go broke, and you should focus on just doing your job. Andrew Krapichetz, CEO and founder of Red Balloon, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Now we look at an upcoming Epic Times documentary called No Farmers, No Food, The Coming Food Crisis. A panel discussed the documentary at Freedom Fest in Memphis, Tennessee yesterday. We heard from panelists and attendees to get their impression of the film. Let's take a look. It tells you everything you need to know about the global leaders behind this, about the corporate government collusion, and about why their livelihood is being threatened. And it goes even beyond agriculture, because the same thing's happening in our energy supply and our transportation. Uh, so what Epic Times has done here is they've really, in a nice, tight package, delivered to people who want to know what's going on with our food supply, what, who's behind it, how they can stop it, and how they can fight back. We're talking about the most basic freedoms that people can have, the right to um, produce, the right to consume, the right to own land, the right to control, uh, to, to govern themselves. I mean, th these are just absolutely fundamental issues that transcend party lines, that transcend uh, partisanship and, and these kind of squabbles that we have nowadays. Uh, so it's a very, very good investment in your time, I think, to, to find out what's happening to the food supply. I finished the documentary thinking how compelling it was, and so I'm really thrilled. I think it's going to uh, wake up a lot of people that don't know that this is a problem and hopefully help wake them up in time that we can fix it. The documentary looks into the agenda behind global green policies, stories of farmers forced out of business, disruptions to the food supply, and why edible bugs are suddenly being pushed as a global green solution. Those attending the panel said they can't wait to see the film. Got to watch it. That's it. 
You need to know what's going on. That's the first thing we need to do, get information out there. People have to become aware. Question everything. You know, we're getting to the point we just have to go, that doesn't sound right. Just doesn't sound right. I'm not going to eat crickets. I, I love my steak, and so I want to learn more about it. I want to watch the show. No Farmers, No Food, The Coming Food Crisis is scheduled to come out in September on Epic TV. Coming up, a major cycling organization draws praise from a former Olympic cyclist after changing its transgender policy. One of San Francisco's iconic landmarks is celebrating its 125th birthday. The city celebrated with music, food and entertainment. We'll take you there after this break. Now for your sports news. The Wimbledon finals are all set. NTD's Dave Martin looks at the matchup. That's right, Steph. Novak Djokovic continued his blazing Wimbledon run, downing six-seeded Yannick Sinner in straight sets this morning to win his 34th straight match at the All England Club and put him in the finals. The world's second-ranked player saved all six break opportunities that Sinner had and is now in position to win his fifth straight title there and eighth overall. To do so, though, he'll have to get past top-ranked Carlos Alcaraz. The 20-year-old topped Daniel Medvedev in straight sets today to advance to his first ever finals there. Now, there's become a little history there between the two, and not just because they've been flip-flopping between one and two in the rankings. Alcaraz's father was recently seen taking video of Djokovic's practice session. When asked about it, Alcaraz said it was probably true, as his dad is a big tennis fan, though he doesn't think it would give him an advantage. Now, it should be noted that the practice courts at Wimbledon are accessible to reporters and a limited number of fans and have no visible barriers between them and other adjacent practice courts. And in cycling news, cycling body UCI has changed their policy and has now banned transgender athletes who transitioned after puberty from competing in the women's division. Any participant who doesn't meet the female criteria will participate in the men's category. The issue had come to the forefront in recent months as cyclist Austin Killips, a biological male who identifies as female, won multiple races in the women's division. Former Olympic cyclist Inga Thompson, who's voiced her concern over the fairness of their former policy, told NTD, quote, I'm enormously pleased to see the UCI has chosen fairness for women's athletes. The studies by many doctors and scientists has been acknowledged and the wishes of the women athletes has been heard. The new rules will go into effect on July 17th. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave. And switching gears, NTD now has its own beauty pageant. The first annual Miss NTD will be held at Purchase College in New York State this fall. The pageant celebrates inner beauty and traditional values. A key sponsor of the event is the historic automaker Packard Motors, which was revived in 2019. We spoke with Packard owner Scott Andrews to find out why he wanted his luxury car brand to share seats with Miss NTD. Packard Motors is the historic luxury car company once known as the American Rolls-Royce. Its cars were proudly owned by the likes of Winston Churchill, Howard Hughes, and Babe Ruth. 
Founded in 1899, it was America's first luxury automaker, setting the standard for luxury American vehicles in the 20th century. The last Packard rolled off the assembly line in 1956, but the company was revived by watchmaker and inventor Scott Andrews in 2019. Here's why. Packard called me, mm. and I could tell it was wanting to come back to life mm. and be back in the forefront. And it's almost like it's almost like a siren calling you, saying, "Hey, bring me back and let me let me show the world how this is done." Andrew says he's inspired by the founders of Packard Motors, who had no problem setting everything aside to stand for American values, truth, tradition, and those kinds of things. In other words, at the end of the day, they wanted a good civil society. That's similar to what the founders of Miss NTD want. The purpose of the pageant is to bring back to society pure authenticity, pure goodness, and pure beauty. The alignment couldn't be any more synergistic. Specifically, it's the values. Packard's known as the luxurious gentleman or lady. Miss NTD is looking for the woman of Chinese descent who most exemplifies the traditional Chinese virtues of morality, righteousness, propriety, benevolence, and faithfulness. She'll be awarded the Miss NTD Sapphire Tiara for one year, a $10,000 cash prize, and a variety of other gifts, perks, and opportunities. The owner of Packard Motors has this to say to the young ladies participating in the pageant. Number one, follow God. Starts with there. And number two, very important you focus on your inner beauty first. He thinks the pageant will have a global presence in the future and sees the pageant as the spark of a fire. It takes a spark to get it going. And they're being very brave to be that spark. And I believe this is going to be fireworks, not just a spark. Since its opening in 1898, the Ferry Building in San Francisco has been the center of a transit hub connecting the whole Bay Area. However, San Francisco residents tell NTD's Sean Morgan it's more than that. We are here in San Francisco's Ferry Building to celebrate their 125th anniversary. To celebrate, they're offering free youth ferry rides across the Bay. On a day like this, we would usually have about 8,000 passengers on our system. Uh, we're expecting nine to 10,000 today just uh, as people uh, take advantage of the free rides for kids and come over to celebrate an amazing accomplishment for the ferry building. In addition to the free youth rides, there is live music, free ice cream, and a proclamation from the mayor. I love this event. The Ferry Building is my favorite place in San Francisco. I am here five out of seven days a week to either get a coffee or just walk around and sit and look at the water. We come to the farmer's market every Saturday, so celebrating the 125 years is super significant. It really showcases what the Ferry Building provides and what San Francisco has to offer as well. I think the Ferry Building represents, most importantly, the San Franciscans is resiliency. It's gone through so many different you know, identities. It was a burgeoning transit hub from 1898 until the 1930s. The bridges were built in the 1930s, so it sort of re reinvented itself then. And then from the 1950s to the late 1980s, it was a mixed office space. And then of course the 89 quake changed everything. It took this double-decker freeway in front of the building down, and the ferry building reinvented itself again as a beautiful marketplace that celebrates local foods and flavors. 
We saw this advertised. We had to come because we're history buffs as well. And the history of San Francisco and all the historical buildings, I mean, this is like number one of the historical buildings, you know, with the ferries and everything going on. So this was our number one destination when we heard that the 125th anniversary was coming. We're so happy. <laughs> We're so happy we live here. <laughs> In San Francisco, Sean Morgan, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.